0: This is a Timmet Podcast. This podcast is part of the series On the Marge. This episode is part of the second series. Chronologically, it falls somewhere before episode 35. The title of this episode is One Man's Garbage one man's garbage. Franz was always coming up with new ways to make money. Some of his early schemes were built on questionable economic and legal foundations, but they improved as time went on. Miko, his Japanese wife, knew that some people considered the presence of the Northern Lights during conception of a child to be a very lucky omen. So Franz and Miko set up a business on their property at Tagish for tourists who were hoping for a child. A unique experience of winter nights in special tents with transparent plastic windows in the top, through which one could easily see the Northern Lights, if there were any. "'So how is the tourist-intense business going?' I asked Franz, when we met in the independent grocer. "'It went quite well,' replied Franz. "'But now that we're almost into summer, there are no more Northern Lights and no more tourists.' "'So, Chuck, I've come up with another brilliant idea. That's why I'm really glad I ran into you.' I was almost afraid to ask. I was never really sure how involved I wanted to be in Franz's schemes, but he had started out as a guest at our bed and breakfast and was now a friend, so I didn't mind helping him out. Just a bit, anyway. Franz's new idea was to take people on guided tours around Whitehorse. No, nothing revolutionary there. There was already a little bus that took people to Miles Canyon and to all the museums, and there was a host of outfitters that would take tourists out on the land. Franz's new idea was to combine wildlife viewing with history and ecology. You know, hiking around the back of the landfill, he explained. That's the best place in Whitehorse to see bald eagles. They're so well fed with garbage from the landfill, they can't fly very far. And they just sit there burping, waiting for someone to come along and take pictures. And there's the old mine for a bit of history. And at the end of the tour, we go to the free store at the dump. Every tourist can take home a bit of Whitehorse from the free store. You know, free. This is a brand new idea. No one else has ever thought of it. What could go wrong? Well, it's true that nobody else has ever thought of tapping into the combination wildlife-history-garbage-tourism market before. I didn't want to sound too skeptical, but I wondered if you would actually find anyone to sign up for this kind of thing. But that's just it, explained Franz. I have six people already for the first tour on Saturday. I was wondering if you could come along in the first one, just to help out. You know something about the dump and the old mine. Uh, Just till I get the first tour right, and then I can take it from there. So, despite some misgivings, I agreed to accompany Franz on the first tour. He picked me up in the van on Saturday morning. I made sure they were all okay with walking 10 kilometers, he explained. This kind of outing is for the active tourist who wants a unique experience, not the bus tour types. The tourists were staying in B&Bs in Porto Creek. I was a bit miffed that Franz hadn't encouraged them to stay at our Walnut Crescent bed and breakfast, but we were full that weekend, so I guess it didn't matter. We picked up an Asian couple from one B&B on Ponderosa, and a German couple from the other B&B on Ponderosa. They were all unexpectedly talkative, asking questions about the upcoming tour and life in Yukon, all in quite functional English. Then we picked up the American couple from the B&B on Pine. That put a bit of a crimp in the free flow of conversation, because the Americans wanted to talk about themselves, and how much it had cost to get to Yukon from Peoria, Illinois. Well, okay, three men, three women, probably all in their 50s, all of whom looked like they might be able to walk 10 kilometers. Things got exciting early. The van had just crossed the highway into the area of Porter creek across from the Super A, when the American woman shouted, Stop! Stop the van! Franz quickly pulled over to the side of the street, and the two Americans jumped out the side door, even before the wheels stopped turning. By the time the rest of us got out, the Americans were standing by a power pole, taking pictures of it and then oblique selfies on an angle to fit themselves into the same photo with the top of the pole. I'd expected maybe a porcupine, but no, it was just an ordinary porcupine-less power pole. I could see the Germans and the Asians were as mystified as I was. They fingered their cameras uncertainly, not sure if this was some unique sight they should be photographing too. So when the frantic photographic frenzy faded, I asked, "Uh, What are you looking at, anyway? Look, exclaimed the woman, wires on a pole! just like in the slums of India. We visited them two years ago and it was really expensive to get there. You have all your wires on poles, just like in the slums. Uh, Don't you have wires on poles in the United States, I asked? Oh, no, replied the man. In Peoria, Illinois, all the power and fiber optic cables are underground. Been like that for at least a 100 years. Hmm. I'm an engineer and I do know something about the industrial development of North America. While the wires are all underground in our section of Porter Creek that is about 30 years old, I highly doubted that the same was true of Peoria, Illinois, a hundred years ago. As for fiber optic cables, well, they were only invented in the last half of the 1900s, certainly not a hundred years ago. But I said nothing as we all climbed back into the van. We parked and then trudged up the ATV trail on the west side of Porter Creek. Things got exciting really quickly again. This time it was a wrecked car sitting in a clearing. That in itself wasn't an unusual find in the Yukon woods. What was unusual was that nobody had set it on fire yet. This time it was the Germans who were enthralled. They took pictures of each other posing in front of the car from every angle and several of the wife sitting carefully in the driver's seat after having brushed away the broken glass, waving out the shattered window. Nobody else seemed even tempted to pull out a camera. Oh well, this is wonderful, exclaimed the German man. We don't have anything like this in Germany. This is exactly why we come to Canada to see things we don't have in Germany. Oh, we don't have anything like this in Peoria, Illinois, either, pouted the American man. Somebody would come and clean it up. And I'll bet this car is made in my country, maybe even in Peoria. I glanced at the car. Hmm, it's a Ford, I said. We make Fords in Canada, too. But if this car were made in the United States, it might have been made in the Ford plant in Chicago. I didn't know there was a Ford factory in Peoria. Oh, well, in Illinois, then, said the man, a bit put out. Huh, oh, probably at least from Illinois. So we headed up the trail, but were quickly distracted again. This time, it was the automatic game camera, firmly locked onto a tree by the side of the trail at about knee height. There was a plastic covered notice on the top saying it belonged to a researcher at Yukon College who was studying animal migration patterns in the area. I'd seen several identical cameras for the same study on our side of the highway. Once I explained what this is all about, our Asian guests took it upon themselves to pose in front of the camera in every possible posture, standing, sitting, and crawling on all fours, glancing into the camera, growling, as the rest of us watch, They giggled and speculated what the researcher would conclude from photos of tourist animals. Well, That's is silly, declared the American woman, but the Asians really seemed enthralled. I didn't have the heart to tell them that the camera was probably dead because the batteries had run down long ago. I would emailed the researcher at the address on the plastic notice when the cameras first appeared about five years ago but when nothing seemed to be happening with the cameras and the researcher had never followed up with the results of the study as promised, I emailed again just last year and received an automatic reply saying that the researcher was no longer at the college. I assumed the cameras had been abandoned. We eventually arrived at the back of the landfill and sure enough, there was a plump, bald eagle sitting on a low tree branch right beside the trail. It looked at us and blinked a big yellow eye. Ah, the mighty American eagle, sighed the American man and put his hand on his heart. I was worried he would start singing My Country Tis of Thee or The Star-Spangled Banner or something, so I quickly said, Yes, the mighty American eagle, stuffed full of top-quality Canadian garbage. Uh, They're scavengers, you know. The American man glowered while his wife pretended she didn't hear. She pulled out her camera and backed up to frame the perfect photo of the mighty American eagle, who showed no inclination of flight. In a brief lapse of attention to her surroundings, caused perhaps by the euphoria of seeing the eagle, the woman backed into the electric fence surrounding the dump. She shrieked and twitched before flopping forward. Her husband rushed over as the eagle shifted uneasily. "'Is the camera okay?' the man asked with concern. And then, "'Did that hurt? I'm going to try it!' Instead of brushing the fence with a glancing blow, he firmly gripped one of the wires with his hand. He shrieked and twitched before flopping backwards. The eagle, thoroughly alarmed, had had enough. It climbed into the air with difficulty and slowly flew back over the electric fence into the landfill area for another helping of Canadian garbage. The American struggled to the feet. That's dangerous, said the man, or we could sue. Look, I said, I don't know how this plays in Peoria, but that just wouldn't fly here in Yukon. As we came up to the landfill, Franz warned everybody about the fence, and you grabbed hold of it on purpose. Well, okay, said the man, but but we paid for eagles, and now there are none. I demand more eagles. I said we would probably see eagles, interjected Franz, and we did, but you scared them away. Uh, there might be more later. We continued along the trail, with the Germans and Asians whispering to each other. When we got to the open pit War Eagle copper mine, we learned that it was much smaller than the Grand Canyon, which, even though it was not in Peoria, Illinois, was the biggest, most wonderful hole in the world, with much nicer scenery. And when I pointed out the area on the side of Heckle Hill above the pit that had been cleared in an unsuccessful search for more copper, our Americans assured us that it had probably been cleared with Caterpillar equipment manufactured in the Caterpillar Factory in Peoria, Illinois. That was possibly true, but I didn't think it sufficiently significant to come out and voice my tentative agreement. As we walked between the mountains of tires and the old garbage dump on the waste rock push area beside the pit, we all had an interesting discussion about the trade-offs among composting, disposal, and recycling, with the related economics of transportation and the possibilities of methane extraction. Well, okay, so we didn't all participate fully in the discussion, but the Americans did offer that garbage was piled much more neatly in Peoria, Illinois. To avoid retracing our steps, We bushwhacked through a section of forest south of the landfill and skirted the secret valley of miniature mammoths. I was not surprised that the Germans and Asians didn't have the word mammoth in their English vocabularies, but they understood immediately when I explained it was an extinct, hairy elephant. I did find it strange, though, that the Americans had never heard of mammoths. They had been on African safaris and knew for certain that no elephants were hairy. And besides, they said, I had the wrong word. It was mastodon, not mammoth. Even though I had been to the Beringia Center often enough with my daughter Alex to know the difference between a mastodon and a mammoth, I didn't have the patience to try to explain it to our guests. The American man, though, had the patience to tell us the irrelevant story of Jumbo, the famous American elephant who had visited Peoria, Illinois, at the peak of his career with Phineas T. Barnum's circus. His wife contributed that Jumbo had ears big enough so that he could fly. That left the Germans and Asians looking confused, so I finished the story. Dumbo, not Jumbo, was the Walt Disney cartoon flying elephant. And the real elephant, Jumbo, had met his end in Canada in a collision with a train, ironically enough on the Grand Trunk Railway. I didn't think the Americans believed me, but the others seemed glad to understand what this is all about. About that point, the American woman started to complain that we had walked an awfully long way. She thought it was only going to be ten miles. She said she hadn't realized when they signed up for the tour that kilometers were longer than miles and who in the world used kilometers anyway. The Germans beat me to it, explaining that kilometers were actually shorter than miles and everybody in the world used kilometers, everyone in the world except the United States. The Asian man offered that he thought that Myanmar didn't use metric either. But we've never even heard of Myanmar, protested the American man. Exactly, said the German woman. The Asians nodded and the Americans frowned. Finally, we got to the high point of the visit, the free store at the Whitehorse Landfill. This is where people dropped off household items that still had life in them, in the hopes that someone else could find them useful. The Germans scored a lovely, clean picnic cooler that they could use with their rental car for the rest of the trip north. This is wonderful, they declared. We were planning on buying one of these anyway. The Asian man came away with a red and black plaid lumberjack shirt. This is exactly what everybody in my country thinks that Canadians wear, he said. People love to see this when I go home. I'll wear it on formal occasions, when everyone else is wearing their traditional clothes. His wife found a box of coffee cups with Canadian scenes on them that she thought would make good gifts for people. The Americans stood apart and sniffed. We certainly don't pick through garbage in Peoria, Illinois, they said. But just as we were leaving, a lady drove up in her car to drop off some items in the free store. I helped her unload, but as we were moving things in, a box fell and spilled out some children's toys. The American man pounced and came up holding a yellow vehicle. Look, he said in wonder, this is a Caterpillar tractor, like the ones they made in the factory in Peoria, Illinois, where I worked for 30 years. But I don't recognize this model. We have all the toy models in the Caterpillar Museum, but we don't have this one. This must be really rare. What a discovery! Then he was seized by a moment of doubt. You mean, I can just have this, he asked, for free? I assured him that that was the whole idea, and I was glad he had found something special. The garbage in Yukon is much better than the garbage in Peoria, Illinois, declared the couple when we dropped them off at their B&B. We're going to tell everyone back home about this. Sure, we all know that one man's garbage is another man's treasure. Who would have suspected, though, that Yukon garbage could be the source of a new boom in destination tourism? This has been a Timmet podcast in a series called On the Marge. Instrumental intro and exit are courtesy of Kate Weeks. If you would like more of these podcasts, check out the podcast website at timmet.ca podcasts. That's T-I-M-M-I-T dot slash podcasts.